The following talk was given at Mile High Church in Lakewood, Colorado. Please visit our website at milehighchurch.org. You know, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was a student of Henry David Thoreau's civil disobedience, and Henry David Thoreau was a mentee of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Ralph Waldo Emerson was the key philosophical influence on our founder, Ernest Holmes. So there's ties together here, and I think that our philosophy and the philosophy of Martin Luther King um, go together quite, quite well. So so grateful to honor him today, and so grateful to see each of you this morning as we continue our series on Back to Basics, and our message today is Authentic Spirit. Spirituality, and my authentic spirituality always has to have a little bit of humor. I, I would define it as uh, incredibly positive with sprinkles of sarcasm. And so I thought I'd uh, begin today by sharing some not-so-inspirational quotes. Is that okay with you? Just to get us going today. So here's the first one. Humiliation begins at the end of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Here's our next one. No problem is so big or so complicated that it can't be run away from. I think Confucius said that. Beautiful, beautiful. Here we go. Why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? It's all about being in the here and now. And lastly, my favorite version of the golden rule, do unto others, then run. That works pretty well. And uh, I like getting a little humor because it helps me with what I would define as my authentic spirituality and invite you to think about what your authentic spirituality is too. And for me, spirituality uh, without authenticity is dead. That if your spirituality doesn't speak to your own heart or translate into your own life, it's probably someone else's spirituality. If God and the divine to you is like an acquaintance that you only talk about the weather with or that a friend of yours knows, um, you're probably in a spirituality that isn't yours. Ernest Holmes, our founder, had a a profound but simple definition of religion. He, He defined it as one's idea of God. Religion is one's idea of God. That's, that's so powerful to me, first of all, because it's, it's personal. He doesn't just give a list of religions for us to choose, but it says or conveys that your religion is your consciousness, that it's up to each of us, that it's not just what you say you believe in, but it's how you live your life. It's as Whitehead alluded to, that one's religion is what one practices when one is alone, It's what we practice when we're in isolation. And I also appreciate Holmes' definition because it means that religion can be something evolving for each one of us. That as I evolve in my understanding of divinity, I might as well say that my my God evolves. As I open my heart to greater receptivity of blessings, my spirituality grows. And lastly, it speaks to the idea that our spirituality must be authentic. There's no need to practice anyone's spirituality when we can find, discover, and cultivate our own faith within ourselves. A faith that isn't magical thinking or ethereal, but is real. That is something that we embody and seek to live like Martin Luther King Jr. did every day. I also love a definition of faith by the author Robert Fulgham who said, faith is a determination to keep in touch with the unnameable being that dwells in the heart of all existence, you and me included. 
Now, when we look at this word faith and what it means to live an authentic faith, there's lots of different definitions of faith. You know, one definition of faith is that um, it's, it's the religion you grew up in. What's your faith? Oh, I'm a Catholic. Or I'm Jewish. Or for a lot of people that go to our church, well, this week I'm 50% Buddhist, 20% Wiccan, 10% Catholic, and 10% agnostic. Always have to leave some room for not knowing. Right. And there's many of us who grew up and were, were held to the, the faith that we, we grew up in. It reminds me of, a, of an old Irish joke where a man asks another man, what religion are you? And he says, well, I'm an atheist. And the man replies, well, are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? <laughs> and to be honest, one of the hidden gifts of my ministry, I didn't know it would be part of it, is actually helping people come back to the faith of their upbringing. Many of us grow up and we feel a deep sense of connection with God and spirit, but we um, are brought up perhaps in a church that at some point seems too rigid or judgmental or uh, exclusive for us. And so uh, we leave and exit and sometimes leave it behind, including that sense of connection in our heart. And I love, it's not necessarily people going back to the church, but people get to come back to that faith uh, with, with new eyes, with a fresh perspective on that holy teacher that helps set things in place. The other side of that as well is many people, they leave a church that they feel is judgmental and exclusive, and yet they don't realize they unconsciously keep the worldview. They keep the image of a judgmental God or, or keep a sense of an unconditional love from their heart. Never quite getting to that authentic faith that each of us, in my mind, is called to do to live in our lives with clarity and with consciousness. Uh, another definition of uh, faith is that it's your belief in invisible things. Our faith is a measure of our belief in the invisible. And this is, to me, authentic in the sense that it's not about magical thinking. For me, we deal with just as much the invisible as we do the visible, whether we call it time and space around us or our own interiority, our own thoughts and feelings. It's our belief in these invisible things that helps show up in our faith around us. I love how the Buddhist teacher, Karen Miller, put it. She said, where do you find faith? You won't believe me, but you already have it. You have it when you surrender to a night's slumber and open your eyes to another day. You have it every time you exhale, and in that half second before you automatically inhale again. You have it when you put on your shoes or when you don't, and walk across this planet without falling off the face of it. Mine is not the faith of wishful thinking. It's faith with arms and legs, days and nights, eyes and ears. Our, our faith should be like skin and teeth. And, and for me, if I had to define my faith in invisible things, the thing that I have the most faith in, um, I believe in them more than anything else, and, and it's virtue. Virtues. Love. Honesty. Integrity. Kindness. Truth. Harmony in a, in a pragmatic sense, this is me trying to be a good person. But in a spiritual or metaphysical sense, this is how I experience God in my everyday life. It's how I seek to bring that prophecy of heaven on earth in my own experience on a daily basis. And I have come to believe that, that my virtues more so than any thinking or outlining um, are the tools and the things that, that set the creative medium most into motion in my life. It's how I co-create my life with divinity when I identify and practice 
my virtues. I never know quite what the result is going to be, but it's almost always ultimately in my favor. I remember about 10 years ago, I was living in San Diego, California, and it was late one night and I was outside of my apartment. I'm not sure if I was um, you know, up to no good or looking for no good. I don't recall why I was outside that night. Um, but all of a sudden, this pickup truck goes swinging around the corner and it's going so fast that it starts to flip over several times and rolls up on its back upside down right in front of me. So a very scary situation, and I immediately notice uh, that there's just one person inside, the driver, and he's struggling to get out of uh, the driver's side uh, window that's upside down there. And I I can begin to hear the sirens coming, and you know how they they say when you have uh, incredible adrenaline, it adds to your strength? Well, that's what I'm hoping for, is I'm trying to lift this this truck up uh, so this man can get out, and he's able to to finally wiggle out, uh, and uh, he looks at himself and makes sure he's in one piece, and he looks at me, and he looks to where the sirens are coming, and he looks at himself and he looks at me and he looks to where the sirens are coming and he looks at himself, he looks at me, he looks to where the sirens are coming and then all of a sudden, <laughs> he starts running as fast as can be away and about 15 seconds later, about 10 cop cars come swinging around. <laughs> I think he went that way. And to this day, I'm still not sure if I saved a life or aided and abetted in the escape of a criminal <laughs> in the state of California. I looked at the man, looked at the cop cars, looked at the man, looked at the cop cars, and I kind of took off myself, too. (laughs) Now, all that being said, in the same situation, would I do the same thing again? Absolutely, I would. And that's this idea of trusting your virtues. You know, I'm sure there's not a person in this room that isn't facing, perhaps, a a choice in front of you. Uh, a difficult challenge or perhaps a confrontation in a relationship that needs to be had or just something in your life that's, that's got to give. And what I would say is the essential question isn't what am I to do, but who am I called to become in this circumstance? Who am I called to become? Not what is the choice that I need to make, but what is the virtue that I'm called to embody? I tell you, if someone said to me, uh, if you can lie and cheat, we'll let you into heaven, I wouldn't do it. But I'd follow my virtues into hell if that's where they led me. Because I have such faith. And I can tell you that all the incredible blessings of my life, no matter how much I tried to outline them, have ultimately come from being willing to embody those virtues that I value and hold most sacred to myself. Ernest Holmes said, we should believe that God is the invisible partner in our lives and affirm that divine love goes before us and prepares the way. We should permit ourselves to be guided, for there is something within us, deep at the center of our being, which knows what we ought to do and how we ought to do it. See, that faith in the invisible at some point is your faith in your own spirit, your faith in your own soul. Do you believe in it enough to bring it forth? in those areas in your life, not just where things are going good, but where things may seem tangled or challenged. Now, there's a a third definition of faith as well, and that's faith as a principle. This is an essential teaching of the science of mind, the idea that faith is a principle. And what is a principle? It's something invisible as well, but we know that it exists because it shows up. Gravity, for example. It's also something that's impersonal. It doesn't matter who uses it or why, it works for everyone. The good and the not so good. 
And lastly, it's changeless. It's always available, and it's all up to us how we use it. And for Ernest Holmes, yes, thought is creative, but ultimately, it's this principle of faith. Wherever we place it in our lives, we are creating. Holmes goes, on, goes so far as to say fear isn't the opposite of faith. It's actually the negative use of faith. And wherever we're putting this, this consistency, this power, this tendency of our belief, we're creating or co-creating our experience with this principle of the faith and the divine. And so I'd like to mention today what, what I would call uh, the three C's of faith, the three C's perhaps of a, an authentic faith. And, and before I talk about them, I invite you to think about something that you're wanting to see demonstrate in your life. It could be a career change. It could be a new relationship. It could be a healing of a current relationship. It could just be a a greater, more profound way of of being you. And think about that in terms of these three C's of faith. And the first C of faith is clarity. Clarity. It's the ability for me to recognize in any instance, and I invite you to think of the instance that you're talking about or thinking about, and to ask, where is my faith in this circumstance? Is it in love or is it in fear? Is it in the best possible outcome or the worst potential outcome? Is it in my highest and best self, my wholeness, or in a sense of my own brokenness and not enoughness? Where is your faith? And when we clarify where that is, we have set that principle of creative and authentic faith into motion. The second C, consistency. The consistency of faith is that ability to, to say that my faith goes beyond and so it is on men. To translate into my choices, to translate into my actions. Not only am I clear on where my faith is, I'm going to practice it with consistency. Knowing what can demonstrate for me, believing in the highest and best for myself and being as myself. So our ability to be consistent with our faith also propels that creative principle into action in our lives. And lastly, the third C of faith, conviction. My ability to trust wholeheartedly that this principle of faith is in action. Now, this is where my authentic spirituality comes in because it may be different from yours. But for me, the faith isn't so much in what I'm telling faith to do. It's in the principle operating itself. Now, there are, are certain people, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room, and I have all the world of respect for you who have that skill to act as if, to fake it till you make it. How many people are good at that? I think it's a great thing, and yet for me, it, it, it's not authentic. It doesn't work for me. I can't have a cold and be coughing and, saying I, and say I am well. I can't feel broke and pretend that I'm rich. I can't be angry or hurting and pretend to be happy um, and, and, um, and peaceful. It's just not something that works with my heart to be able to do. Now, if you can do that, again, authentically, I think that's an amazing thing. Keep it up. I'm not criticizing it. But for me, what I have to be able to do, and some of you may relate with me, is what I can do is I can trust that even though my experience not, might not be great, that principle of faith is in action. Yes, I'm feeling bra- uh, broke, but I know that abundance is. 
yes, I'm feeling not enough or I'm hurting or angry, but I know that peace is. I may not be feeling um, my whole self, but I know my wholeness is right there. I may not know what the truth is in this moment, but I, I think I know that it is around here somewhere. And that's conviction, to know that our faith is being operated upon by this divine principle, this, this uh, spirit that we believe we co-create our lives with in this incredible teaching. Where is your clarity? Where is your consistency? Where is your conviction? Not just in the everyday nature of your life, but especially in those areas that may be challenging you or calling you. Someone who was a master of faith in my opinion, was Martin Luther King Jr. Especially as he approached the civil rights crisis in our country beginning in the 1950s. His clarity, we're all one. We're all sisters and brothers tied together in that single garment of destiny. Not just black or white or didn't matter what religion it is or what gender you, you are, we're all to live as one in harmony. That was his clarity. His consistency, to seek to show up wherever injustice was appearing and showing up to hold the clarity of that faith. He didn't know how it would demonstrate, but he knew that it would. And that was his conviction. To know that even in the darkest midnight, there can flower the dawning of some great fulfillment. His conviction deep down in his heart was to always know that God was with him. He had a mentor of sorts by the name of Sister Pollard who would tell him sometimes after meetings when things seemed to be falling apart that um, if the white lawmakers didn't seem to like him and perhaps even uh, uh, the, the black folks that were feeling tired from the protesting weren't liking him, he said, it, it doesn't matter who is with you because God is with you. God is with you. And that was something he carried with him throughout his entire life. And on December 5th, 1955, uh, Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on the bus. And young Martin Luther King Jr. hadn't done any civil rights work yet, but was on the phone with a, with a few other activists and decided to come from Atlanta, where he lived, to Montgomery, Alabama, uh, where they would start a bus boycott. And, and it's important to understand that this wasn't just segregation in the bus system. It, it was a, a kind of cruelty that was going on. It was this type of system where one sort of people who are maybe even struggling in their own class feel the need to push other people down in order to lift themselves up. And so uh, uh, someone might be trying to get on the bus and they might put money in the slot and they'd have to get off the bus to go around to the back and sometimes the driver would just take off. And it wasn't just that whites could sit in one section and blacks in another. If the bus filled up uh, with white folks, the, 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 the black individual would have to get up and give up their seat and get off the bus. No money returned or anything like that. So there was something uh, disgraceful going on, something that, that would disgrace the soul. And the bus boycott was incredibly successful. And the white lawmakers at the time, uh, they knew they couldn't uh, defend uh, the immoral nature of what was going on in the bus system. So they, they pinpointed Dr. King. He's just out for himself. It's all about him. 
That's what they would say in the press. They would call him in the middle of the night and uh, make threats against him and his wife and children. They would blow up his house. At one point, he was uh, arrested for driving 30 miles an hour in a 25 zone. He recalled that time, he remembered um, being driven around and, and it didn't look like they were heading to the police station. And so he thought frighteningly about things that he'd heard about people being dropped off at mobs or disappearing altogether. And he finally looked up and he saw um, the signs for the police station and his heart just filled with relief and thanksgiving. And he said that he only realized the irony later that he was giving thanks for being improperly arrested and taken to jail. The, the boycott was very successful, uh, but eventually the, the white lawmakers figured out a, a, a way to break it down. And what they would do is they would make ride-sharing, which is how uh, many of the black individuals were getting to work, illegal. Uh, and so it would be like a taxi company. So you would ha- it would be like a business. You'd have to get a business license, and they weren't going to give anyone business licenses. And so King knew that the boycott was going uh, to have to end. And uh, afraid, he spoke uh, to the, the groups that would gather for meetings around it. He said, I knew that they had willingly suffered for nearly 12 months, but could we now ask them to walk back and forth to their jobs? And if not, would we be forced to admit that the protest had failed? For the first time, I almost shrank from appearing before them. When the evening came, I mustered sufficient courage to tell them the truth. I tried, however, to conclude on a note of hope. We have made it all these months, I said, in the daring faith that God is with us in our struggle. The many experiences of days gone by have vindicated the faith in a marvelous way. Tonight we must believe that a way will be made out of no way. The day after, there was a court hearing to test the legality of this new business license rule, and it wasn't looking good. And King was heartbroken during a a recess when all of a sudden a, a stranger tapped him on the back and handed him a piece of paper. And it read, the United States Supreme Court unanimously rules bus segregation unconstitutional in Montgomery, Alabama. My heart throbbed with an inexpressible joy, King shared. The darkest hour of our struggle had become the first hour of our victory. Think about that in your own life to see the challenges that you face in your personal life or the challenges that you see in the community or in the world? What is the clarity that you hold about oneness, about inclusivity, about brotherhood, about sisterhood, about love? Are you clear about it? What's your consistency? Are you willing to have the courage enough to show up to face an injustice in the world or even in your own mind or heart and remember the clarity of your truth? And can you have that conviction to know that God is with you? Even in the darkest midnight, even when when it seems a way cannot be made, that there is no way. Even when it feels that you are on the edge of yourself, to know there's this divinity, there's this faith, that even though we may not see it operating fully and completely in the world. It's there and it's more real than anything else. And is there a greater purpose than to step up and be the conduit for that truth to appear in your mind, in your heart, in your authentic way of being and life? No one else can do it for you. You must do it for yourself and embody it. And when we do, 
those divine virtues show up. An even greater love, an even greater understanding, an even greater way of being. To close with a few more words from Karen Miller. She says, Pull up the vines that hide the truth, your ideas and expectations, your doubts and foregone conclusions, your beliefs and fears, no matter how well argued or self-righteous. Disentangle your feet. Take the path to the highest point and see the panoramic view of a place assembled without a plan. A place that is insufficiently documented with no visible mortar or glue, functioning with the perfection born of an intelligence you cannot comprehend. Thank you for listening to the Mile High Church Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the generous contributions from listeners like you. If you'd like to make a donation, text 720-230-1404 or visit us at milehighchurch.org. Peace out, friends.